Isn't it good to have the whole band back together? <laughs> right? One of our challenges when we were on the, uh, the patio was um, not waking up our neighbors. And so uh, we are very happy to have the, um, the band back. And uh, what's really cool with the doors opened, uh, Tyler told me uh, last week, uh, there was a, a woman walking her dog. Uh, and she heard the music and came over. And commented, had a little conversation with, with Tyler and commented that she might be back this week. I don't know if you're here, but uh, if you are, welcome. And, and so it's kind of cool, right? We never think that the music goes out and there's so many pedestrians and people going by that God might use the service just to draw someone in um, because of it. it's, the, it's their time. And, and whether it's the, the music or you seeing a, a bunch of friendly faces here or the words. So uh, we are blessed to be able to gather once again. Uh, last week, we uh, continued our journey through Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, again, just a quick reminder, if you're new this morning, just kind of bring up the speed. If you're new watching uh, this morning, welcome. Uh, the book of Ephesians is really a letter, and it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to Christians in the city of Ephesus and the surrounding region. And uh, we've moved into chapter 6 and the final part of chapter 6, where we're talking about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. And um, the response that I received from last Sunday's message, you know, really was encouraging. And I know many of you, uh, you at home even responded uh, in that moment. It was just a powerful movement of the spirit. Uh, but I want to kind of do a review because, again, if we don't lay the right framework for spiritual warfare and understanding the need to put on the full armor, the whole armor of God, you know, as we move forward through the different pieces of armor, it may just not resonate. Right. And I talked about that last Sunday that, uh, you know, OK, it's uh, February 21st. Right. Right now, as I'm speaking, I'm looking at the clock, 1022 a.m. Um, OK, everyone here put on clothes. Right. That's a good thing. Uh, but this, this morning, did you put on the armor? You know, because we saw last week, it's a conscious choice. Is part of the need we have to put on the whole armor of God, the panoply, the complete suit of armor. So this week, this morning, are you suited up as you sit here in person at home? Are you spiritually suited up? Because we saw last week, there's a need. There's a great need, right? And so I want to kind of lay a framework as we move forward a little bit into the belt of truth this morning. Uh, Mark Bubeck says this about spiritual warfare. It says, the believer's emphasis in spiritual warfare must be upon a biblical doctrinal approach to the subject. Subjective feelings, emotional desires, and fervent sincerity are not sufficient weaponry against Satan. He yields no ground to emotion or sincerity he retreats only from before the authority the believer has through his union with the Lord Jesus Christ and the absolute truth of the word of God. Amen. Okay, right. Depending on your upbringing in the church and, and you know, exposure to spiritual warfare and, and uh, you know, the supernatural realm. Sometimes people uh, think that, you know, you have to be really demonstrative and you've got to be really energetic and you've got to be really sort of extroverted to deal with Satan when when the truth be known. The authority is our victory in Christ. The authority is the word of God. You can be the most extroverted person or you could be the quietest introverted church mouse. But if you're in Christ, you have the same victory. 
Okay, and so that, that's important that we lay that framework as we move forward into this, that spiritual warfare isn't for the spiritual SWAT team. That, you know, if you're going through a, a battle, if you've been through a battle this week, maybe you're sitting here going through a battle, and you're like, well, I got to call so-and-so, and I got to call so-and-so, and so-and-so. Well, maybe you do, because maybe they have more experience, maybe they're a little more mature, but don't mistake that for the sense that you don't have the same authority and victory as your friend. You just need to learn what they already know, and you need to learn what's already yours in Christ. Victory. Victory, okay? So I'm not saying we go it alone, and I'm saying it's not good to call people, but what we do need to do in our spiritual faith, in our transformation, in our sanctification, is grow up into maturity. We need to grow up, and we need to personally appropriate, personally use what has been given to every single believer, not just the spiritual SWAT team, okay? Very important. So last week, uh, we laid the, the framework, uh, Ephesians six ten to 13, we'll read that. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. All right. Warren Wiersbe says this. The danger on the battlefield is that we do not take the enemy seriously and therefore fail to put on the whole uh, put on all of the armor. Okay, again, it's just one of those things. Uh, for whatever reason, you, and I use the mask illustration, right? Part of the challenge with wearing a mask these days is that we're challenged at the need level. Do I really need this? Can I really trust the people that tell me that I need this? And so if we're struggling at the need level and, and submitting to them, trusting the authority, well, that's kind of similar to why you might struggle with putting on the armor of God. Well, things are good. All this talk about, you know, the devil and demons and cosmic warfare. Uh, I don't know. I'm pretty good. Right? Right? Just turn to the person next to you and say, are you good? Right? Just, I mean, because we kind of look around, right? And, and, and we can be deceived into, and this again, a scheme of the enemy. I told you before, if I'm the devil, I'm pretty much not going to show up and scare you with being big and red and scary and, and ah, like all the horror movies and all that, because I know if I'm the enemy, that's going to scare you to Jesus. Scare you right to Jesus. You might even move from the back row to the front row one Sunday because you're so scared, right? But if I'm sly and I'm slick and I kind of let you, ah, you really believe that stuff? You're fine. It's all good, right? That's much, much more successful for many believers is to just lull you into this sort of false sense of peace and security because then you just leave the armor at home. You just leave the armor at home. Quite honestly, you might even not even feel the need because you're going to church. Why do I need the armor? I'm going to church. Well, if you've been in church ministry any length of time, you know that there's incredible battles that go on every Sunday around here. Because this is the last place that the devil wants you or me to be. So whether it's the tech stuff that goes 
upside down for no reason, Sunday to Sunday, whether there's little, uh, you know, flare-ups here and there, personalities, whether just these little things that happen every Sunday here that many of you, and it's fine, you don't need to know, but we do. And, and it's amazing, because if you think about it, in the spiritual world, this is the last place the enemy wants you to be. With other believers, worshiping in spirit and truth and hearing the word of God. And so maybe, maybe Sunday mornings in your life are a little chaotic and hectic for a reason. Maybe uh, it's just, you know, man, everything was good. And then I woke up Sunday and things just went cray cray. And people at home are fighting and done. And then you get here and you're just all, uh, and you're, right? You know, and I shared this with before. You're fighting at home. You're fighting in the car. You park right there. And then the miracle happens. By the time you get to the front door and you see the greeters, how are you? I'm good. How was your week, right? And see, the funny thing is now with the blinds up, we see all of you who are angry as you drive in. Like there's no, there's no, and someone competent, and we see whoever's late because now the blinds are up. So we see all the cars come in after 10 o'clock. It's kind of funny, right? But you got to understand, we can be lulled into a false sense of security, even coming to this thing we call church. But you got to flip that, like just again, flip that and say, wait, there's extraordinary spiritual warfare on a Sunday morning. It's the opposite in the spiritual realm. You got to flip it. But the enemy wants you to think, look, look over here. All good, good, good. When this is really what's going on. Okay, so so there's a lot of wisdom that we need to to maintain as we stay focused on the word. So quick review when it says put on the armor. We saw last Sunday. That's that's an urgency. Do it now. Don't delay. Right. Take up the whole armor, not just your favorite piece of it. The whole armor was given to us for very specific reasons. We need to put on the whole thing, the whole thing, which for some means we need to be educated about each piece. And that's why we're going to take our time walking through this, right? Two reasons. Why do we need to? Number one, we saw so we can stand. We can stand. The word picture for that stand was the Roman sandals that had spikes in them. Caligae. Right? And it's not just this casual standing like most of you know, okay. No, it's standing. It's Roman soldiers in formation who get this military athletic stance. And they're like this. You're not moving me. We're not giving an inch. That's what it is to stand. Right? And many of you, at the end of last uh, Sunday, you know, there was just kind of, I just let the Holy Spirit move. And I said, you know, if you're ready to stand, you stand. And many of you stood here, and I heard that many of you stood in your living rooms at home because you understood we have to stand. Amen? You have to stand. But it's not in your own strength. You stand in the strength and victory of Jesus. But you have to choose to do that. And I brought Jordan up here, and I said, and we do it together. We do it together. He chooses to stand firm. I choose to stand firm in Christ. And sometimes maybe things in life happen and he wavers a little bit. And I say, hey, dude, it's okay. Stay. Stay right here. Maybe there's a time in my life and I'm, I'm like a little overwhelmed and I want to take a step back. And Jordan puts his arm around me. He says, no, no, no. Stay here. We stand together. We stand firm. Right? That's why he's given us the armor. The other reason is giving us the armor, is that we, he says that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. 
We saw last week that that word schemes is not just this general sense like, oh, the devil is a generally bad guy, so he generally wants to do bad things in your, my life. No. That word schemes means, in one sense, there's a file in the headquarters of the enemy for every person in this room and every person listening. And the enemy has a file. And they scheme based on what they know about you, your particular weaknesses, your particular areas of uh, compromise, your particular areas where they can throw out that particular lure, right? How many, any fishermen here? Fishermen, right? You know that to catch certain fish, you need a certain lure. Salt water, fresh water, trout, bass, right? One lure generally doesn't work for every species of fish out there, right? You got to, under the conditions and what you're fishing for, you pick the lure or you pick the bait. Well, when the devil schemes, he looks at you, Cody, and he says, let me see. Oh, yeah, it's this plastic, and it's the blue one. Right? And he looks at you, Randy, he goes, that's an anchovy. And he throws an anchovy to Randy, right? And then for somebody else, right, it's a top water, it's a metal, and it's a, you do it on the top water, right? And for someone else, he's bouncing the jig off the bottom. It's specific to each one of us. That's how he schemes. That's how he schemes. That's why we need the armor. And that's also why, honestly, we need to be humble. The Bible says pride comes before a fall. And the moment you or I think that, ah, psh, devil, he, I ain't going to give in to that. That's silly. You're on your road down because he's already got you. Right? Pride comes before destruction. So there's a sense of great humility. Lord, I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be lured in by that thing coming across my path. Right? Unique to you and unique to me. Okay? Ray Stedman says this, the devil is real. He is active. He is working day and night, trying to subvert and undo and defeat God's plan in human history. The devil is our enemy, and this is war. There is a spiritual war going on behind the scenes of history, and that spiritual war in the unseen world is driving events in our own visible world. There is no peace in the material world because there is a war now raging in the spiritual world. There's nothing more meaningful, more relevant, more real that we could be involved in than the cause of God in this vast spiritual war. The biblical teaching of spiritual warfare shines a spotlight of truth on the basic problem of human existence and human history. So we have to understand there is something raging. Okay? You have to really kind of settle that issue. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So this isn't a game, right? He wants to devour you. He doesn't just want to just see. It's not just messing with you a little bit. It's devour. It's devour. You, me, your family, your marriage, finance, devour you, right? David Jeremiah says, you've heard perhaps that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
That's very good news. But it is also true that Satan hates you and has a plan and strategy to destroy your walk with Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this? Well, I shared with you last Sunday, we don't live in fear. You can have sort of a sober, serious, even respect for the spiritual warfare, but we're not scared. Amen? Now, that, I know it takes a little bit, and that's why you got to be in the Word, and you got to be in prayer, because some of you might, it just might be scary, okay? And this is where faith and being in the Word of God and prayer and fellowship comes in to help you with the courage you need, okay? It's also, you got to remember that the devil and his demons are created beings. They are limited. Everyone say limited, right? Again, in the, in the movies, offense is good against evil, and it's portrayed like 50-50 power, right? Who's going to win? Who's going to win? No. The devil is created. The demons are created. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. God is infinite. This is not a 50-50 power struggle. God wins all the time. Amen? Amen. And we are on the winning team. Not just the winning team, the winning family. Amen? Amen? Okay, so we fight from victory. We stand in a place of victory, not fighting for it. Amen? Very important. This is why Ephesians, the first part of Ephesians was doctrinal. Who are you in Christ? What have you been given? Right? It set us up for this very moment to engage spiritual warfare, to stand firm. You ain't moving. I'm not giving you an inch, but it's not me. It's everything I am in Christ and everything I have in Christ. Amen? Okay. That's where we are. So then I was thinking, well, there were some verses that I didn't get to last Sunday, and I was, I was like, should we go there? Should we move on? And, and I wanted to go back a little bit, and I want to spend a little bit of time just identifying some of the schemes of the enemy that we see in the Bible. Because if we're standing firm, right, and there's, you know, Shiloh and Jordan and Jody and Mark and all of us, right? We're just standing firm, and we're like, okay, don't give an inch. We, we, we're in the strength. Part of what's helpful is to know what the enemy might be coming at us with. How many would find that a little bit helpful? Right? Like, let's just know, right? If, if, if you tell me he's scheming, here's the truth. A lot of his schemes have not changed since the garden. They still work. They still work. Now, for instance, I don't know how many of you uh, are familiar with, with the stock market or, you know, the financial markets. Uh, but, you know, the stocks, they go up and down like this, right? And supply, demand, buyers, sellers, and all that. Underlying the stock market, those who know the powers that be and those who are experienced in the stock market, the truth is they study human nature. And there's two things that drive the stock market. Fear and greed. That's what really drives the stock market. They know if a stock starts to drop, people will get so scared that they'll panic sell. They know if it starts, stocks moving, people get all excited, FOMO, fear of missing out, greed that they will buy, okay? Here's how they're working you. Your desires for fear and greed. Something happens in the market, whether it's market or manipulation, you call it, it creates fear. People start panicking. They're selling at huge losses. You know what the powers that be are doing at that moment? buying they're taking advantage of all the people panicking in fear selling at super low prices they are doing the exact opposite because they know human nature 
And you're like, dude, I just sold. How come it just went up? Or it's skyrocketing. Hey, buddy, it's moving, it's moving. And then and, and it's FOMO. Don't miss it, don't miss it. And everyone, greed. Come on, greed. You'll double your money. You'll triple your money. 10%, 20%. And you buy at the top. And in the minute you buy, it does this. And you're like, I just bought. Why did, it just went down. How did it go down? I don't get it. Because the powers that be knew that you were buying in based on greed and fear of missing out. What were they doing? Selling to you. As you were buying out of greed, they were selling everything they bought when you were scared. You got worked twice. This is a real world example that people are caught up in emotion, in this case, fear and greed, and the powers that be underlying the stock market, they're taking advantage of you. 100%. They are doing the exact opposite of what emotionally you think you should do. They're like, gotcha. Gotcha. You panic sold? I'm just here buying it at a great discount. And then all of you who want the greed to make back your money, I'm just going to sell it to you at twice of what you sold it for. And in the end, they get the money. It's not too different of what the devil does behind the scenes. He's scheming, and a lot of it is playing with our emotions, our feelings, our opinions. And he's working it behind the scenes, and we have no clue because we're just reactive now. We're just reactive, okay? So I want to look at some of these schemes of the enemy just so that maybe you or brothers and sisters in Christ can help identify what might be happening, what might be happening before we just react, before we just react and get taken advantage of, okay? So 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven... If there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. In this particular context, Satan is trying to create division and discord in the church of Corinth through unforgiveness. Scheme. Let's, let's create unforgiveness in the, in the church family. And Apostle Paul says, hey, I'm forgiving everybody. <laughs> Devil's trying to scheme us. He's trying to outwit us. He's trying to create division in this church because we're not willing to forgive one another. We're called to love one another. We're called to be united in Christ. It's the exact opposite of what we're called to do biblically as a church family. And yet the enemy will come in and there will be gossip. There will be unforgiveness. There will be backbiting, all kinds of stuff in the church. Where is that coming from? Not from the Lord, right? Not from the Lord. And then I think about that And let's bring it up to 2020, 2021. What's the potential uh, grenade, if you want to call it that, for church disunity today or grenades? How about politics? How about race relations? Right there. And then it's weird because I think of Ephesians 2 where he talks about bringing the Jews and Gentiles together as one in Christ. I mean, again, we talked at length that that was crazy for the Jews and Gentiles to be sitting in the same room, united in Christ. That's 
that was crazy for them back then. And yet in 2021, the church is divided over politics and race. We, 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 we lose sight of our unity in Christ. We lose sight that we are one body. And who's laughing? The devil. Who's winning? The devil. Because now you're angry with one another because of a human governmental institution. And you don't even want to come to church anymore. Not only does it ruin your walk, it ruins the testimony of the church. Because what does Jesus say? They will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. But we can't even get over politics and race. Who's winning? Who's winning? It's warfare. But he gets us off of the truth. Hey, don't look at me over here. Spiritual warfare trying to destroy the church. Let's just look at all the things happening in the world, y'all. And you're getting played. The church just gets played by the things on this planet. And we lose sight of Jesus. We lose sight of who we are in Christ. And now we're backbiting and we're gossiping and we're shooting off stuff on Facebook and Instagram, whatever, against one another. And all the while, the devil and his demons are having a party. Come watch this. Hey, watch this and he just watches the church destroy itself from within and all they had to do was get the ball rolling okay so one of his schemes discord division in the church right and i was thinking well what else is going on here right if you think about job job was a godly man the most godly man on the planet Satan says, you know what? Take it all away. Take away his possessions. Take away his family. Take away his good health. He'll curse you, God. Right? He'll curse you. And then in in Luke 22, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. When he says sift you, he means all the disciples. What does that word sift you like wheat mean? Huge trial coming. So what's one of Satan's schemes to try to get you to curse God, to try to get you to knock you off your feet? Turn your world upside down. Materially, financially, even health-wise. Trials and tribulations coming your way, sifting you. Job said straight up to God, hey, take it all away. He'll curse you. How many of us in our Christian walk were dependent on circumstances? And it's unfortunate because some, a lot of the message of the church is about health, wealth, and prosperity. And if you're right with God, then you're going to get yours materially, financially. And so along comes Satan as well. Let's just flip it upside down. Let's just take it all away. Lose your job. Struggle financially. Have health issues. Then what are you going to do with Jesus? S- strategy hasn't changed. Strategy hasn't changed, right? Uh, there's a thing. Uh, even in, in the world of finances, it's called FUD, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's another way they get you. And I think of that even spiritually. Think about in your life, the decisions you make, the struggles that you're going through, and really at the core, you're being shaken because of what? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And then you try to scramble and you try to react and you try to fix it on your own. And you, 
and you're being driven by fear and uncertainty and doubt. And sometimes you need a brother or sister to say, yo, chill out, time out, deep breath, deep breath. Let's go to prayer. Let's go to the word because bro, right now you are just full of FUD. (laughs) And if you're honest with yourself, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the poor decisions you and I have made in our life is because we were driven by FUD in that moment. We were scared, we were anxious, we were insecure, we didn't know what to do, and we just reverted back to self. We just, we just kind of freaked out, okay? That's one of his strategies. The other strategy, which is interesting, which is, hasn't changed, is, okay, so if it's one is take it all away, huge trials, tribulations. The other one is give them everything they want. The garden? Remember the garden? Your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, right? Matthew 4, verse 8, the devil comes to Jesus. Part of the temptation, we don't really talk about this one. He says, Jesus, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms. He said, the Bible says he showed him all the kingdoms and their glory and said, hey, all you got to do is bow down to me and it's all yours. Right? So, so if he's not going to take it all away, you know what he might do? Give it all to you. Get you comfortable. Get you prosperous. Help you achieve the American dream. Right? Where did we see this happen? Well, Revelation 3. Remember the church at Laodicea? Laodicea was a commercial center. Super wealthy, super successful. All that wealth and commerce came into the church people, right? And it says this in Revelation 3, 15 to 20. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What had happened? They had gotten everything they wanted materially to the place where they were now spiritually dull. They thought they didn't even need God. They were so materially comfortable, financially successful, that now they were spiritually apathetic. I don't need, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. Very... Very similar to a lot of the church in America. But then he says, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He's like, you are so dulled in your spiritual vision that you can't even see what's true anymore. You've been deceived. And this is where we have to be careful even in the church. That we don't get to this place of being so spiritually comfortable that now we don't even see our true spiritual need anymore. We just don't. Okay, so the enemy, he might be allowed, remember, allowed to bring testings into your life, maybe big, huge challenges. You might get everything. You might win the lottery. You know? And that would be your undoing spiritually. That would be your undoing, right? So you got those schemes. What about the other, the other schemes, right? 2 Corinthians 3.11. But I am afraid 
that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Right? What's he talking about? He's talking about false teachers. Scheme of the devil. People come into the church and take you away from simply loving Jesus. Right? Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. Speaking about false teachers. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, here it is, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. What's his scheme? He brings in false teachers into the church itself. Disguised. Right? Sounds really good. Gives you what your itching ears want to hear. Takes you away from the core truths of the doctrine of faith. Right? But it sounded really good. Kind of pushed all the right buttons for you. A lot of people were following them. A lot of enthusiasm. A lot of hoopla. But was it the enemy that got in? Right? It's why you have to really, really be disciplined and really, really be careful. And whatever anyone says behind this pulpit, you need to search it out. You need to be sure it's biblical. Okay? You do. Because according to these verses, I mean, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. There's false teachers in there. And and again, in our culture now, because there's a mega church somewhere and because there's thousands of people following, it must be true what's coming from there. Really? Be very careful. Be very careful that you're not measuring spiritual truth and validity by number of people in seats. That's dangerous. That is incredibly dangerous. And who knows? Fear, greed, FUD, who's driving that? Who's behind the scenes making that stuff happen? Because he knows he's just got to get you away from the truth. He's just got to get you away from the truth. Okay, so so there's some of the schemes that we see in the Bible. Okay, where the, the, the devil is directly involved in trying to destroy your life, destroy my life, destroy the church, okay? So then we move just a little bit forward today into what we call the belt of truth. Ephesians 6.14 says this, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, uh, the belt of truth is the kingulum militare, right? And uh, you got a picture of it coming up there. Right there, okay. So, if you've seen uh, movies, pictures of the Roman soldier, that's a kingulum militare. It's the belt, right? Uh, there's a close-up. Uh, there's the, the soldier wearing it. Okay, it's very important. We're, gonna, we're, we're just going to take it real slow. Now, my guess is, and this is, I'm just going to be honest. When I used to watch, like, movies and stuff and see pictures, I kind of looked at what he's wearing right there as an accessory. Like... I like the shield and the helmet and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword and that thing hanging there. That's pretty cool. 
right? And in, in one sense, there's a bit of an accessory to it because the, the officers would decorate it and you would kind of know your status by how they decorated it, that type of thing. But here's the thing. You, got, you can't overlook this piece of the armor. There's a reason it's listed number one. There's a reason. Now, we want to jump to the sword because we want to da-da-da-da-da, right? We want the shield and that's all the big stuff. There's a reason that the Kingulum Militaire is number one. Now, it says in the uh, English Standard Version, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, fastened means you cinch it up, right? It's a middle voice, which means this. You got to do this. You have to fasten this. Okay, now, now here's the word picture, help you understand a little bit. When I was in college, uh, me and my roommate and my friends, we would work out. We'd go to the gym on campus and we'd work out. And part of the things that we would do is every once in a while, we would have what we call a you know, max day, where you go for a max, whether it's on the bench or squat or whatever you're going to do. And on max days, what we would do oftentimes is, you know, you've seen those weightlifting belts, those leather weightlifting belts. Sometimes you see them on TV, they're leather, then they get wide in the back. And so on a max day, as we were getting heavier and heavier, we would put on a belt and we would tighten it up and you'd feel pretty good, right? You're like, okay, I'm ready for this weight. And then you would get the weight. If you get the weight, boom, you get the weight. As you got higher and higher, you know what you would do with that belt? You would go another one and you would go another one. And when you're about to do it, you're like, you pull and you're like, hey, bro, pull this thing. And you would get there and you would get into that hole and you're like, I'm ready. Because you couldn't even breathe because it was like so tight. But you wanted it tight because when it was cinched, you felt the support. And then it did something into your head. When you get cinched up in a weight belt and you're about to max and you feel that, you're like, I'm, I, I, I got this. There's something it does to you mentally and in your attitude when you're cinched up and you're ready to go. Okay? That's what he's saying about the belt of truth. You got to cinch it up. The soldiers, when they were going to go into battle, they would, they, would be, they would be fasting. They would tighten them up. When they're off duty, they loosen them. Question, is your belt fastened right now? Are you ready? Are you ready? Right? And what, what, what makes this, uh, Jordan, if you could put that picture back up, what makes this really important, why this is number one? See, the soldiers would have their, their sword and their scabbard, and it would kind of sometimes be on a leather. The, the belt would have a dagger, and sometimes they would put supplies and all that stuff, food, even if they're on a march. They would wrap it, and they would cinch it along the bottom of the breastplate. The belt holds everything together. The sword... And its scabbard goes underneath the belt and they cinch it so the sword isn't flapping around. When they pull the sword out, the scabbard, the holder stays there. The most important thing about the belt of truth, it holds all the other pieces together. Question for you. Who or what is holding everything together in your life right now? Your intellect, your 401k. Who or what is holding all the various pieces of your life together as you sit here? See, the Apostle Paul says, first piece of armor, guys, 
you got to cinch it up. You got to fasten this kingdom military because it holds it all together. And in fact, when you cinched it up, what, what I, I, was watch, I was watching this pretty cool video, they cinch it up right here. And what they would do is as you cinch it up around the breastplate, you feel the weight of the, the armor goes onto your hips and belt. And it actually lifts the weight off. And now the soldiers can even fight more because the weight is lifted off and it's all right here. If you've been backpacking, right, you know what that's like when you cinch up the, the hip and all the weight sort of gets lifted off onto your hips. That's what's going on. If they had uh, tunics or long garments, they would lift them and they would tuck them in there. The belt was central to the entire armor. And yet you and I, honestly, for me, many years, I would just skip over. Oh, yeah, I fastened the belt. Okay. And we equate it like these little belts we wear in our pants and stuff. No. If you're going to fight and you're going to be ready for spiritual warfare, you got to cinch it up. You got to cinch it up because it holds everything else in place where it needs to be. Okay? And then he says it's the belt of truth. And this is where we're going we're gonna to get as far as we can today, and we're going to come back to this idea of truth. Again, why is this important? Well, in John 8, 44, right? Jesus is having a conversation, and he says this. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Pretty, it makes, makes the belt of truth real important. Amen. If the devil is our adversary, if the devil's a slanderer, and now we know that the devil is a liar and a father of lies, we better understand the belt of truth. We had better understand the belt of truth. Okay, so now we know its importance. We're ready for battle. It holds everything together. But this idea of truth, what is truth? And, you know, years ago, a few years ago, I, I, I taught on truth and what's going on to our culture, absolute truth versus relative truth and everything going on. Um, we're not going to necessarily go there, but I want because I, I want to stay focused on the belt of truth. But Ray Steadman says this. Truth is reality. Truth is a sum total of the way things really are. Therefore, truth is the explanation of all things. You know, you have found the truth. When you find something that is wide enough and deep enough and high enough to encompass all things, that is what Jesus Christ does. So one definition of truth, when it says belt of truth, truth is that which corresponds to reality. Okay, that's the correspondence theory. It's a definition of truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. So when I make a statement, it's true if it corresponds to reality. Very simple definition. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Okay. Now, why is that important, especially in today's culture, battling with absolute truth, relativism, right? The whole thing going on. Well, I was thinking, how, how can I explain this to you? Well, back in, in 19, summer of 1999, spring of 1999, I got a call. Hey, looking for a youth pastor. What about you think about coming to Ojai? I had never heard of Ojai. Never heard of Ojai. So what do I do? <laughs> I get on the early days of the web. <laughs> And I'm like, Ojai. And back in 1999, if you Googled Ojai, Ojai was a very spiritual place. Just a spiritual place. 
right? Sort of like a spiritual buffet. Come to Ojai and you just have choices, right? It's like hometown buffet on the spiritual world, right? And, and it got me, you know, and so we, the whole process, and we ended up coming to, you know, the spiritual hometown buffet. But, but I was thinking of that in light of truth, and, and there was something I taught on years and years ago when we were at the Wesleyan Church, and I thought it might help you and me understand truth and its importance, okay? So, so hang with me, bear with me. You know, I'm, a, I'm an active learner, and I like to do things, and some of the people who saw this are like, what is that? I'm like, you'll see, you'll see. So... I have, I have a little glass vase here with some wooden blocks, okay? And I'm just going to ask, just, okay, I'm, uh, social distancing, we're going to keep distance. Okay, there's a number of blocks in there, right? Number of blocks, okay? Don't, like, freak out. I'm just going to ask a few of you how many you think are in here, okay? Just based on your observation, okay? How many you think are in here? Bill, how many do you think are in here? 35. You're going what? 53. 35. Jody, laser eyesight from the back row. How many, what's your, what's your, you saying 88. Okay. So 53, 35, 88. Okay. The actual number is 55. Okay. Wow. Okay. So we would say, we would say in this case that that's true. 55 in here is true, right? When I say there's 55 blocks in here, it's a statement that corresponds to reality. 55, okay? Now, and we would say that's right, right? 55 is right. Now I have a cup of Starburst. Yeah, right? Everyone who hasn't eaten. There's strawberry, cherry, fruit punch, and watermelon. Okay? Jacob, strawberry, cherry, fruit punch, or watermelon. What would you prefer if you had to pick? Choice? Cherry? Benito, you want to? Ch- okay, we'll go cherry. Now, like, I can't, I'm not supposed to throw it to you, so I'll, you can get it later, okay? Because, <laughs> you know, I got to be. So we have a cherry preference. Randy preference? You already stole one. Yeah, Randy came up. If you didn't know, when Randy brought up my thing, he stole one. So, um, so wait, yeah, you thief. So, Strawberry. Well, I don't know where strawberry. You got the strawberry one. Okay, so you. So cherry, strawberry. One more preference. Grape. Okay. Which one of those is right? He says strawberry, but cherry. She strawberries. Which one of those is right? And you see, the challenge with that is that their preference and its subjective opinion. So to ask which one is right isn't answerable because it's a preference and it's subjective. So is Christianity and following Jesus more like the blocks or more like the starburst? Absolutely essential question for you to answer. Is following Jesus more like the number of blocks in this vase Is Christianity more like the blocks or more like the starburst preferences? You got to get this if you're going to understand truth and what you profess to believe. Absolutely essential. Because according to the Bible, 
you're a Christian, Christianity is this. It's an objective reality. In our culture, Christianity has been lumped in with other world religions and organizations as just one of many preferences. You've got to understand this. If you're going to raise your kids and you're trying to teach your kids and all this kind of stuff, you want to share with your friends, this is a rubber meets the road moment for you to understand. Christianity, being a Christian, is not about starburst preferences and subjective opinion. It is about objective reality, truth. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a heavy-duty statement. He's not just a truth. He's the truth. He is the essential essence and source of truth. Jesus is claiming to be the truth, not a truth, not one of many preferences, the truth. Okay? John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus, he is the very essence of the Word of truth. Jesus is God. He is the truth. The God's Word is truth, Right? And so we have to really hammer this down. And this is why I, you know, many of you know, I was going my way to uh, becoming an attorney, law school. So I didn't really just kind of go with the flow. I was like, I was one of those. "Mm, Let me check that out. Oh, let me check that out. Let me check that out. So when I was introduced to Christianity, I was like, so you're saying, see, a lot of my journey to to Christ was very, uh, I want to call it analytical, but very researched and very much like, so let me get this straight. You're saying Jesus is the truth. You're saying, because here's the thing. If you read the New Testament and let Jesus speak for himself, he says some pretty cray cray things. He claims to be God. He claims to be able to forgive sin. He claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to father heaven, right? Now, you just take that at face value. How would you respond if someone at Libby Park was saying that right now? Hey, I'm the son of God. I have the power to forgive sins. I'm the only way. He's down there at Libby right now by the fountain claiming all of this, right? It would take you back to what the very famous trilemma popularized by C.S. Lewis Right? Where based on Jesus' own words, he only have three options. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. Based on his words. You cannot say that Jesus is a good moral teacher, self-help guru guy. The things that Jesus himself said leave you basically three options. He's either cray-cray, he's a liar, or he's Lord based on what he says, not me read, read what he says. This is why the religious community and, and people who heard him, they were like, dude, did he just say that? Right? 
That's why the religious leaders were freaked out when he says before Abraham was, I, I, I am. When he was claiming to be God, religious leaders like, wait, you're the carpenter's son. You're from Nazareth. What do you mean you're God, right? So based on Jesus' own words, trilemma, liar, lunatic, Lord, you have to choose. You have to choose. Why is this important? Because it goes down to truth, that which corresponds to reality. You see, you can't just prefer Jesus, not based on his words. It has to be objectively true or not. He doesn't leave you that option to make him one of the Starburst flavors. This is what separates Christianity. This is what separates Jesus from the world religions and other religious organizations out there. Jesus claimed to be God. Okay. And here's the other thing that separates Christianity. The resurrection from the dead. We then on April 4th, it'll be our 11th Easter together. And for about, I'm guessing almost 11 of those. <laughs> every Easter, what do you hear me say? I, I, I will say this again in a few weeks. If the resurrection did not happen in the historical timeline of Earth's history, go home and never come back, because I'm not going to be here either. There is an objective reality to Christianity, and it's called the resurrection. This is what separates us. A lot of world religions and organizations out there, they're based on principles and practices, first and foremost. Christianity is based on a person. Amen? You got to get this if you're going to understand the belt of truth, if you're going to understand truth. And this is why a lot of Christians right now, you're tied up in knots because somewhere along the line, you came to Jesus, the person, and then you flipped it. And now your Christianity is more about principles and practices and not the person and loving Jesus. Okay, super important. That's why, you know, I wish, you know, it's like you want to just have this conversation with someone because I really want to know. You're following Jesus. You say you are. But are you more consumed with principles and practices or just the person of loving Jesus? And out of loving the person, your principles and practices flow. We flip it. We flip that, right? So here's 1 Corinthians, uh, Jordan, we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your, your faith is in vain. That answers your question right there. You cannot, you cannot separate the validity, the truth of the resurrection, the objective reality, and turn Christianity into a subjective preference. That's not an option. The Apostle Paul in that verse squashes that option. He says, if the resurrection did not objectively happen, go home. You're still in your sin. Your faith is in vain. Why are you here? Because I won't. I wouldn't be here if the resurrection didn't happen. I'm not about just being a part of a religious organization based on principles and practices to make me have the best life I've ever wanted. But a lot of us have turned Christianity into principles and practices for the best life you've wanted. And you forgot that it's about the objective person of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. 
This is what separates us, guys. And this is why the world, quite honestly, doesn't like us. Because we're intolerant, and we're narrow, and we're legalistic. And my answer to that is, no, we're just trying to be true to the truth. And that's why I spent a whole lot of time back in my seeking days trying to figure out if that resurrection really happened. Because according to the Bible, if it didn't, all you Christians are just a bunch of fools. Now, I wasn't going to be a fool. (laughs) But if it did happen, cha-ching, objective reality, we got the truth. And because the resurrection happened and Jesus is the truth, everything else flows from that. I'm a child of God. My name is written in the book of life. I am a new creation. I've been given everything I need for life and godliness. I have the whole armor of God. Do you see how it all flows from the objective reality of Jesus and the resurrection? We're not dealing with preferences and subjectivity. And I really like that one. And that one sounds really cool. And I'm just going to take a little from there and a little from there because I live in Ojai, the spiritual hometown buffet. And I'm going to fill my plate with a little bit of all the spiritual things on the spiritual menu in Ojai. You can't do that. You can't do that. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that, for some, makes you wrestle. I wrestled with it. I had to wrestle with it. All right? Personally, what it meant for me coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, what it meant for me with people in other faith traditions, I had to wrestle with that. Okay? That's, that's something that I know I'm not going to out-debate you and I'm not going to out-convince you. I'm going to teach you what the Bible says and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit turns the light on. I can only be faithful to teach you what the Bible says. Speak the truth in love. But you guys, we have to, if we're going to, I mean, it's so funny, right? Who knew when it says, fasten the, the, the belt of truth, who knew that it meant all the way back to the resurrection? <laughs> And why is this important? Let me, we're, we're going to close here in a little bit. Why is this important? Let me give you some, why is this important? If my Christianity is mostly about principles and practices, I can get very much involved in learning biblical principles and trying to go to church and do all these practices. I can do all that and still be in charge. Because it's not about Jesus. It's about me following Christian principles and practices. So it looks really good to everyone, but I'm still Lord of my life, right? If my Christianity is about principles and practices, here's the thing. I can get into this pragmatism where I want Christianity to work for me. So I'm going to do these principles and practices so it works. But here's the problem. What happens when it doesn't work? Well, you're going to go to another religion and follow their principles and practices to find something that works for you. I had a friend in college literally told me straight up, I don't need God. Why didn't he need God? Because he was handsome, successful, smart, and intelligent. He didn't need principles and practices. Thank you very much. I don't need self-help. See, if your Christianity is principles and practices, it's not much different than going to Barnes and Nobles and looking in the self-help section. That's what a lot of people have turned Christianity into. Principles and practices for this, for this, for this, for this, for this, for this. And it's, about, it's really about self. It's about self. And finally, here's an encouragement for you guys. In your testimony, 
And I want to speak directly to parents for a little bit. Parents, I want to encourage you to take a step back in grandparents, whatever you might be. And I want you to ask yourself, do I want my kids to see me loving the person of Jesus first and foremost? Or are my kids somehow inadvertently picking up that Christianity is about principles and practices? Huge difference. Huge difference. And sometimes with the best of intentions, you know, I raised five kids. And part of our desire in raising five kids was like, Lord, let them see that we just love Jesus. Please help us to weed through how to have principles and practices and why we do what we do and don't do as a Christian family. But Lord, please don't elevate principles and practices above my kids loving Jesus, the person of Jesus. I want them to see a dad that just loves Jesus. And that my life flows out of just loving Jesus because Jesus first loved me. But when we inadvertently put Christianity principles and practices first, what do you think your kids are picking up that Christianity is? A bunch of do's and don'ts. And they miss Jesus. They miss Jesus. And so this belt of truth, you know, we're going to pick it up next week because I know we're, we're running late. I just, I just got to encourage you. Take the time this week to really ask yourself, is, is following Jesus the objective reality? Or has it just been a preference for you? Just one of many religious options on the menu that you kind of just pick and choose from based on your convenience and what works. Because the Bible says we're supposed to, we're supposed to cinch up. We're supposed to fasten the belt of truth. And you know what that really means? I love this. Uh, Jordan, Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To put on the belt of truth, to fasten the belt of truth in the beginning, the very core is to put on Jesus. He is the truth. So if you tell me fasten the belt of truth, what he's first and foremost saying is put on Jesus. Every day, put on Christ. That's what, it, that's what this ascent, you know, we're going to talk more about God's truth and everything next week. First and foremost, to fasten the belt of truth is every day to choose to put on Christ, who is the truth. That's what we do. We put on Christ. And how do we do that? It goes back to just his love and my love. Okay. Come back to the person of Jesus, way elevated above the principles and practices. When did Jesus call his first disciples? What did he say? Hey, yo, follow me. He didn't say, hey, yo, here's a list, principles and practices. What did he say? Follow me. The principles and practices will follow as you follow me. Amen. Somewhere along the line, we flip it. And in the church, we get so consumed with principles and practices, we just forget to love Jesus. And we're going to sing a song. Uh, come on up, Ben. And it's kind of a confession song. Many of you know it. It's called Heart of Worship. And if you really listen to this song, it's a confession song. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. Because, see, we can enter worship right now as a principle and practice. Well, we're supposed to worship. And we sing. And we, 
okay, is this song a principle in practice or is this song truly going to be between you, you at home, and Jesus? I encourage you before we take communion, sing this song, not principles and practices. Sing this song personally. Sing it to Jesus. And if you need to ask his forgiveness because you've been caught up in principles and practices and you stop loving him, first and foremost, then this is a great time to ask his forgiveness and just love him. Amen? Let's just love Jesus through this song.